trigger warning, trigger warning. This is a reminder, you have got a trigger. <laughs> Do you know what your trigger is? It's that soft spot, that bruise that makes you see red when it gets pushed. And I don't know what your trigger is. Only you know that. This podcast strives to have thoughtful adult conversation about human issues. But I'm not a professional, and I would describe lots of the topics here as things that would trigger someone. So if you find yourself being triggered by any of the issues that we talk about here, I'm asking you now to please take that opportunity to simply find something else to listen to. Also, this is not professional advice, ever, <laughs> even when we talk to professionals. This is only casual conversation that is meant to promote for mindfulness and examine our own egos. Thanks. When I was a lot younger, I was very shy. And I was a wallflower kind of kid who would sort of like mumble the jokes to the person next to me and they would laugh. And then all of a sudden you'd feel a little less like a wallflower, you know? And so I kind of have an affinity for people who are shy or other wallflowers. Like I can kind of find them <laughs> in a crowd. And that's how I like became best friends with my, I think still best friend now from like seventh grade. Like she was a, a wallflower and we played sports together. And I was sort of like you. I know that there's really funny shit inside of you. <laughs> and I'm going to come and get it out of you. When I was really young, my mom had to work like a day shift and my dad worked at restaurants. So I spent a lot of time with him. And I was daddy's little girl. And my dad was a funny, witty, smart, seemingly tough exterior. And I definitely took cues from that. I was also told growing up a lot that I was my father's daughter. And that was seen as like a very positive thing. He was a, a funny, smart, kind of wallflowery type of guy. So he kind of seemed like this hero in some ways when you're told at a young age that you're like your dad. You start to believe those things. So I kind of drafted off of that and that influence. I mean, I've had literally my therapist has been like, you have a very male mentality. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here with me, Earth Monster. I'm your host, Matt LeBlanc, and for years I had such an adverse reaction to people making jokes about my name that it kept me from making a lot of friends. This is Your Necessary Delusion, the storytelling show that celebrates vulnerability and speaks to the darkest, messiest little parts of your heart about the lies that we tell ourselves every day, the stories that we use to get out of bed, the fantasies that we let propel our lives. If you've been listening and you have a necessary delusion of your own and you would like to share it, I would invite you to call our voicemail. Don't worry, it's just a voicemail. <laughs> there is no risk of me picking up. But if you would like to leave us a message there with a delusional tidbit to share, or feedback on one of the episodes, or even your contact information to set up a time to record a story with me over video chat, then that's what it's there for. The number is 323-540-4540. You can also email us at yournecessarydelusion at gmail.com. Our guest today is my friend Colleen, a core member of my found Los Angeles family, and whether she knows it or not, someone who continually teaches me about storytelling. It started out pretty simple. Colleen grew up as a funny tomboy, essentially. And while some of this came from nurture that she received from her funny father, some of it was nature too. Here's Colleen. 
I was the only girl born into my family. Everybody else had boys. And when I was born, everyone sent like dresses and stuff <laughs> and pink. And I, as a baby, literally cried in a dress. <laughs> so I completely rejected the like gender roles the family was trying to put on me. So part nature, part nurture. Which is only to point out that lots of times we roll with the delusions that are most convenient to us. The ones that express themselves in our organic behavior. When I was a kid growing up, everybody was like, you're so funny. You're so funny. You should be a comedian. And it was like my superpower that I could get people to laugh and be my friend. And it felt easy and like effortless to do. My dad's friends were also like really smart, very funny, very witty. And my mom's friends too. My mom was very social. So I just learned how to like be around people. I learned very early that when you find someone's sense of humor and you can make them laugh, like it basically is a superpower. Delusion! It gets so much goodwill for you, being able to make people laugh. My dad used to make jokes that like my teachers would be like putty in my hand when I was able to like figure out their sense of humor. Because <laughs> it's true. you can When you can get somebody to keep laughing, they will let you kind of get away with stuff in some ways. And it makes it sound like I was like pulling cons on people. I wasn't doing anything. I just wanted to be friends <laughs> with people. It's so interesting to hear Colleen talk about this because while I can find so many similarities in our stories, I was also very driven by making people laugh. It occurs to me while she explains this how different our delusions were that surrounded this ability. While I historically used humor to become the center of attention and let people know that I was special and therefore better than them, delusion, delusion, Colleen used humor as a way to connect. While I foolishly taught people about my brilliance, delusion again, Colleen fed off of the other person's energy and adapted her sense of humor to what she believed would make them laugh. To this day, it is what makes her a champion at Cards Against Humanity. The first few rounds, I would maybe just like throw out words that I thought were funny, but then I'd get a sense of everyone's humor. And then after that, I would destroy in those games <laughs> because I just knew what they would find funny. And I'd be like, well, that will work for them. That will work for them. Cards Against Humanity is essentially a game that gives players multiple choice punchlines to anonymously match with setups for jokes. Whoever can make the person holding the joke card laugh wins. I probably would not have included this bit unless I actually saw it happen, and I have. Colleen is a Jedi. She grew up as a tomboy in the suburbs of Long Island, and she used her sense of humor as a way to connect from early on. I was friends with a lot of guys growing up in my neighborhood. I was best friends when I was like seven with the neighborhood bully. The neighborhood <laughs> um, bully? Yeah. <laughs> he lived across the street. We used to play street hockey. He wasn't like a big kid that like pushed you around. He was the little kid. He had the little kid syndrome where it was like he could run his mouth and try to tear you down. And when we play street hockey, he would like find ways if you scored that he'd be like, I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. Like, <laughs> And I was kind of his right hand man like, yeah, you tell him. So I was like in the boys club since right. I was very little. Sounds like she was one of the founders of the boys club, actually. She was the bullies number two and they were seven. I think it was also like a survival thing, right? It's like, yeah. if I can make the bully laugh and have fun with him, he's not going to pick on me. And he didn't. But then you're kind of on his side, too. Yeah, and then I'm complicit in, in cheating at street hockey. <laughs> but he was probably picking on people. Definitely, yeah. And you're very funny. Yeah, so it's like, that. I guess that maybe was one of the first instances where my humor could be used for not good. 
you know, like you could become a mean girl pretty easily if you let it. So glad I asked. There was an incident one day with this bully kid where there was this other kid that he was teasing. And I'm not proud of this, but he was teasing him and he went and ran away. And as he was running away, it was like we were on like a gravel, you know, the loose gravel driveway mm-hmm. kind of thing. Sure. And I picked up a rock and, and I threw the rock at the kid and I managed <laughs> to hit him in the head. In the head. It was a small rock. To be fair, it was very small, but I hit him and it like cut part of his head. And I remember his parents came over and I like got in trouble, rightfully so, for doing that. And I think that was sort of the thing of like, okay, fun time with the bully is over. Now these are repercussions and (laughs) we can't be doing this anymore. (laughs) Some parts of our stories flow out like water. We like those stories. We tell them often, but some parts we hide. This miniature milestone of acting like a bully was one that I had to dig for a little bit, and I love that we found it, because it is such a great example of the milestones that we don't usually clock for ourselves, the moments in our lives that we try to race away from. We let our memories get hazy. We conveniently forget the hard-hitting lessons that have guided us. We let the specifics hide in the excuse of forgetting and I have a bad memory. Do you have a bad memory? Or do you have a bad memory? Not saying that's what Colleen's doing. I'm talking to myself. And like kind of after that, I kind of like enjoyed other people in classes and being a nerd and we grew apart. But that was kind of the incident of like, yeah, I hit a kid with a rock on his head. (laughs) Not great. Not great. She likes to say that she got her bad streak out early. She spent her time as her father's daughter and playing a lot of sports. I did track and lacrosse and volleyball. Soccer was a really big one. I played in on multiple different teams. It was always rooted in my identity for a really long time that I was this tough girl who could just make you laugh. So I wrapped a lot of my identity in that. You know, when you're young, you take in what's all around you. And when you're told things over and over, it's easy to start to believe them. That's a compelling idea. There should be a podcast about that. All these people are telling me I should be a comedian. So at like 11, I really started to be like, maybe I can do this as a career. And I had parents who were supportive in that. So they almost fed into this delusion since I was very young. This monster was fed constantly. I would watch a lot of like SNL on Saturdays. Like I memorized the sketches. I would sneak down and watch Letterman like on the staircase when my mom thought I was asleep. A lot of the things that we have learned are typical habits of blossoming comedians. My mom was always like, you can definitely write on Letterman and that fed into it more. That was my necessary delusion growing up. It was like, well, I'm definitely going to be a famous comedian. It was like it was already written in the stars. She had all the makings for a famous comedian. And now all she had to do was live it out. And then at some point I watched enough true Hollywood stories that I learned that the people who truly do succeed have like usually something they've had to overcome that pushes them to really get there. Like, there's tragedy mixed with comedy a lot. Delusion? Well, I remember growing up in the suburbs feeling like, oh, well, I don't have anything that's, like, darkly tragic, so I'm never going to be famous. That was, I'm never going to maintain this. (laughs) There is always a necessary delusion to stunt the growth of a young artist. It's either, I'm too messed up, I'm never going to make it, or I'm not messed up enough, I'm never going to make it. Regardless, the delusion is that we're not enough. Whatever you need to tell yourself, Earth Monster. I was kind of the class clown, but I was also like a good student, so I wasn't disrespectful in class. I was like weirdly able to be a class clown like with the teacher after hours. <laughs> Which is how she still is. So they all really liked me and let me get away with stuff. But I never, getting away with nothing. I, I would just like wanted to be friends with them. <laughs> 
again, using her superpowers as a way to connect. I had this one science teacher that he got a kick out of me and I would stay after class and we would kind of like BS a little bit and he would then write me a note so I could be late to my next class. And my other teacher, my Spanish teacher at the time was like really, I remember one day she was like, you're really, you're taking advantage here. And I was like, he needed my help. Like (laughs) we had to talk about funny things we saw on TV the other night. Like it's important. Funny and friendly, but don't forget tough. I have a younger brother. He's five years younger than me. So there was a distance there to where I was almost like a bigger brother, I guess, than a bigger sister. (laughs) So I would kind of beat him up and tell me it was, I I could beat him at all the sports because we were five years between us, right? So she was an athlete and a class clown, a star student, and a tough older brother at home. One of my good friends in high school, he did this kind of art project uh, our senior year. He took pictures of each one of us in in the group of friends and, and gave us all labels. And so it was like the girlfriend, the best friend, the like artsy one, and I was the funny one. Delusion. You might be thinking, why did he put a delusion sting right there? Her friend named her as the funny one, and she was the funny one. Not a delusion. But it is. Because the more we focus on the stories and the attributes that we like about ourselves the more we ignore the rest of it, the more we look for opportunities to fulfill our destiny and be the funny one, the more we play to the idea of who we think we are, and the less we allow for our true selves to come out. As scary as it seems, Earth Monster, we are making choices about who we are, moment by moment. But there were other little stories of little things that drilled into my brain about like being tough or funny, which this guy I was dating was basically like, oh, you're like a tower of rejection. Yikes, there's a title that you don't forget. I'm a tower of rejection. I'm a tower of rejection. Yeah, did I ever tell you about when my like, my boyfriend called me a tower of rejection? Delusion. Like I, that I was this intimidating figure and I kind of liked being seen as, as tough and tomboyish. Like I kind of liked that. And right. hearing stuff like that would, would make me lean in. Because innately, we all feel vulnerable and self-conscious at our core. We feel insecurity because that's where we have the most visibility. To find out that people perceive us as tough or intimidating is intoxicating because it feels like status. And so instead of explaining, oh, I I don't mean to come off as a pillar of rejection. I'm just afraid of opening up or I'm not very fluent in expressing myself. Instead of that, we just claim the status. We lean into the delusion, lean into the mystery. We repeat our story. I'm a tower of rejection. My one friend had this gym class with this girl who was kind of a preppy girl, like popular girl kind of thing. She was like, oh, you know Colleen? And she's like, yeah, we're really good friends. And she's like, oh my God, she's so funny. And then she turned to my friend and was like, have you ever seen her cry? Like it was this mystery because I had presented in such a way that like, oh my gosh, has anyone ever seen that girl sad? And I remember being like, that's so weird that that's such like a mystery thing that people are curious about. But I also was aware of like, oh, people see me in a certain way. And I kind of leaned into the way people saw me Yeah. instead of allowing myself to feel or be vulnerable in front of people. But it was also high school. It's not like you're about to walk in and be like, this is what I'm going through. You know, it was a lot of people do it, that in high school. <clears throat> Guilty. <laughs> Right. I guess I didn't. I also grew up in like a waspy kind of like Irish repress your feelings kind of place where it's like everything's fine. Not that I grew up in a bad household or anything, but it was just a very like suburban, you know, we don't really talk about things that are bothering us kind of place. 
And But to be fair, I also had like a great life. I didn't really have struggles. I was privileged and didn't know it, you know? I was a huge tomboy. I barely wore any makeup. I had my hair in a ponytail all the time. I never think of yeah. you as a sloppy person. Um, no, but I looked like everyone who's ever been waiting in line to go see an improv show. My regular outfit in college was like these kind of frayed brown corduroy pants and a t-shirt that said Girl Scout dropout on it. Like <laughs> that was the, that's the picture. Let's paint. <laughs> Colleen, I have to admit, I have a very hard time imagining you in a dress right now. I know. It's not an easy thing. I've gotten the better time, at it. I bet I've seen you do it. Have I ever seen you wear a dress? I don't know. I feel like the feeling that you'd probably get is seeing like a teacher outside of school, like at the grocery store. You're like, oh my gosh, you do other things. This is insane. I don't have that many dresses, but I have tried to be better. Like She thrived in college. She was the dark horse. She got cast in all the shows. Her school had a student-run TV program, and Colleen spent the better part of four years at the center of it. I was the only girl in a lot of the shows. It would be a bunch of guys and then me. And so I kind of always had to be on, and I always felt like I had to bring it, which is sort of a funny thing that I was feeling like I had to be there for the ladies, even though I didn't really identify as a lady. <laughs> I very much leaned into being like one of the guys as a survival technique for sure where it was like I could speak dude and I could speak pretty fluent dude so they didn't see me as a threat or anything I was just one of them and that again was probably part of that kind of superpower of like I'd see what they thought was funny and I'd be able to like get into their humor and it felt really good to kind of dunk on them when I could be funnier than them because I was more patient or willing to listen or I didn't have to be the loudest. I could still be funnier than them without having to like shout the loudest. That felt really great. I always thought of wallflowers as people who didn't want to participate, but that's two dimensional. Wallflowers listen and they wait for the right moment to chime in. This one girl, actually, when I was playing lacrosse, there was this boy that he had liked her and then he moved to like, like me, I think. And I was like, oh, really? And I remember her saying, you could be so pretty if you tried. And, and how did that land? Uh, you know, I think in some ways it was the ego in me was like, well, that means I'm like still prettier than you because I'm not even trying. Right. <laughs> like the ego in me was like, cool. So you're saying I'm attractive and I'm not even trying. I'm effortless. She continued to excel towards entertainment in college. She participated in a program that let her move to L.A. for a semester and work on a TV show. I actually interned on the last season of The West Wing. So that was another big status thing, too. It was like, oh, man, this is like network TV, baby, you know. And here I am with Aaron Sorkin. Ever heard of him? You know, like there's definitely an ego, even though I'm like nobody, Right. <laughs> you know. I'm like getting them coffee if I'm lucky. But driving around in a golf cart, I don't know that you know how much of a baller you can feel, especially when you still have the dreams of like making it in entertainment, then like cruising around on the WB lot to go to the West Wing set in a in a cart that's you're responsible for. Like yeah. <laughs> that feels pretty baller. After she graduated from college, she moved to L.A. She began working her way up the entertainment ladder. And she was kind of tougher than ever at this point. Delusion. Everything was working for her. I'm the girl who doesn't cry. I'm the girl who occasionally wears dresses or skirts now. Um, so I'm feeling a little bit more of my like femininity, but I still don't really know how to be a girl. Um, right. <laughs> and I'm, you know, I'm definitely pushing away any emotions. She was working assistant jobs and networking and sleeping on an air mattress in her aunt's living room by the airport. 
Were you breaking down the air mattress and inflating no, I, it every day? No, thankfully it was a continuous air mattress. This was my dad's sister. So again, she is also a tough exterior kind of person who has like a biting wit. Like that presence maintained. It, you know, I right. was away from home, but there was like a different shade of it that I was living with for a couple of years while I got on my feet. It was scrappy, but it felt exciting in the way that stuff does in your 20s when you're like, I don't know, I'm just going to go for it and see what happens. You know, I, I think I moved out assuming I would hate LA, but I wanted to give it a try. And then I was like, I love it here. I was surprised. Yeah. I think people back home were especially like kind of impressed by that. Yeah. That can easily fill that you know, feed that ego monster a little bit of like, oh, I'm so tough. I can move across the country and I don't even care about it. I started to not just go after TV, but TV comedy. So it was like literally became my job to be funny. I was a showrunner's assistant and then writer's assistant. And I worked my way up. I liked a lot of my coworkers. I wasn't just like networking to network. It was like, I genuinely liked a lot of the people I worked with. And it kept happening that I would move up and then they would go to staff me, but then the show would get canceled. And that happened like three different times. And so I was like, man... <laughs> Maybe this just isn't going to happen. When I was up for a couple of things and didn't get it, you have to be, uh, again, tough enough to not take that rejection seriously or let it crush you because it's just part of the process, right? There is an aspect of the grind of Hollywood that can wear you down. I definitely reached a point where I was like, is this just not going to happen for me? And then Vine came along and, and boosted my ego so I could keep going a little bit longer. Do you remember Vine? It was around for like six seconds. Vine was the video sharing app that allowed users to make and post videos up to six seconds long. Colleen was making funny vines with her friend and she found an audience. This 50,000 plus people find me really funny and, and it helped get me job interviews. It helped cast me in a sketch show that didn't go anywhere. Sometimes when you win, it doesn't need to be anything concrete. It can just be a little delusion to boost your spirits and ignite some action. Let's lean into the funny and that ego boost a little bit more to like help me get to the next the next piece. And then I finally broke through by writing animation comedy. And then I was starting to work on this big reboot for Disney. I was working for Disney. She did it. After working her way up for years trying to get her foot in the door, she got hired as a staff writer on Disney's reboot of DuckTales. I had a friend who actually said to me, like, everything was lining up and this was going to be my year. Looking back on it now, I'm like, oh, you sweet summer child. You had no idea. I had written one episode and I was starting to work on my second one for DuckTales. We had to make 25 each season. And it was my... Dad's birthday is June 4th. Despite their closeness, she didn't talk to her dad all the time. Her family was still back in New York, and neither one of them were phone people. This was his 60th birthday. So I gave him a call, and we had like a weirdly long conversation, like abnormally long for us that day. He had to like step away from the party to like chat with me, and I could hear, you know, his friends on the phone you know, teasing and joking with each other and like teasing me of like, what are you doing taking him away from the party kind of thing? Like, you know, that kind of New York uh, fun attitude <laughs> of teasing you because they like you. So first we talked about TV stuff and we did a deep dive about like episodes of what was going to happen on Game of Thrones and character moments and, you know, media things. But then I also remember talking to him about like, you know, he was turning 60 and so I was teasing him about being old <laughs> and talking about traveling and how I really 
wanted to go to like Tokyo or Japan soon. And I remember him saying, you always want to go to these places. I have no interest in going. Right. Because <laughs> he was kind of somebody who would rather try to like go across America because he feels like I hadn't seen all of America. So why would I go to another country? And I'm like, why would you want to stay in America? Go to another country. Like, <laughs> So we were kind of teasing off of that. And then the call ended and, you know, we said, I love you. And then he said he'd see me later. So five days later, I get a late night call from my mom. Colleen felt something was wrong right away. 11 p.m. makes this a 2 a.m. phone call from New York. And she's upset. And she's like, Dad had a heart attack. And I was like, what? And she goes, the EMTs, they were at the house when it happened. And, you know, he's, he's fine, but he's in the ambulance. And she was in the hospital, and they're waiting to hear from the doctor. And I was just like, what, what the, what? This was obviously a lot to take in. So human behavior, don't take it all in. Colleen says her first thought was of a family friend that had recently had a heart attack. This person had been in worse physical condition than her dad and turned out to be fine. So So I was kind of in this mindset of like, well, that's really scary, but like, he's going to be fine. In this moment, also leaning on humor, I was trying to joke around with my mom and use my superpowers to get her to calm down. You know, she was freaked out. And, you know, I was teasingly being like, yeah, he's in better shape than so-and-so. And so he'll be fine. Like just <laughs> making these jokes to try to make her feel better. And I'm just trying to like wear out the clock till we just hear back or my brother's able to go to the hospital and meet her. They were having a hard time getting a hold of her brother. 2 a.m., remember? Colleen's husband, Ben, was calling him while she talked to her mom. And, um, oh God, it was, I was on the phone with her and a doctor approaches at some point and he says, he's in a constant state of arrest and we can't get him out of it. And I was like, what, what does that mean? So he, he leaves and says they're working on it, but she's like, I don't, I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means. I'm just trying to get my brother there. Like it was hectic. And then, then the doctor comes back and I hear him say, I hear him say, and I was really hoping, the ego of me was really hoping I could get through it without crying. <laughs> the doctor winds up saying, I'm so sorry. We did everything we could. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was in the living room and I was just hit with shock of being like, I was convinced it was going to be fine. Delusion. He was just here. What, what, what happened? And I heard my mom like break down on the phone and I didn't know what to do. <laughs> I was like, I can't hug her. I'm across the, the country and she's by herself in a hospital finding out that her husband just died suddenly of a heart attack. Like I had never felt the distance living across the country until that moment. Like, I, they felt so far away. And I was just like, oh my God, what? Like, I went numb. I started to go through this, like, adrenaline thing. And true to life being, like, still kind of funny in that moment, the doctor, like, went to be on the phone with me to, like, explain what had happened. And he's explaining medical jargon to me that I'm not understanding in this moment, right? So I'm in shock hearing this man who I don't even know what he looks like tell me on the phone that my dad just died of a heart attack. And he says something about how I'll see him when I get there. And I was like, oh, I'm not there. I actually am in LA and I'm going to have to fly home. And he, in this very like normal human moment that I usually probably would have had fun with was like, oh, what part of LA? And I was just like, oh, the valley, you know, like 
<laughs> trying not to like completely lose my shit. And it was like small talking to me about living in LA. And I was just like, dude, now is not the time. Like I it was still being polite enough to not like scream <laughs> at this man. But I had no interest in activating my superpowers at that moment. I was just politely being like, yeah, it's the valley. It's hotter. Yeah. Can you put my mom back on the phone? <laughs> you didn't lash out at him though. I didn't. I didn't, which I definitely could have. Would you have lashed out at him? Remember, she had just been sitting up late watching TV in her living room, enjoying her delusion that this year was her year. And suddenly, she's faced with an undeniable reality. Her husband was there with her. She called her friend Garrett to come over too. And as this late, terrible night unraveled, she found reasons to laugh. The guy that came to read the last rites was like, the oldest man in the world and he just, <laughs> just hearing his voice on the phone it was like today lord we are here to say goodbye <laughs> to steven 200 years old and this guy's thriving in his career reading the last rites of her dad who was 60 I had to mute myself on the phone because I was laughing and he and I were like doing bits <laughs> As the guy was doing his last rites, like we were making jokes to like get through it because humor was just a crutch in that moment of like, I I can't feel all of this because it's soul shattering. My body was in shock for like the next 48 hours. I was peeing every like 20 minutes. It was like this weird adrenaline thing. I also at some point couldn't stop crying. The girl who doesn't cry was a delusion. Obviously, we all cry sometimes and it is completely necessary. She went back to New York with her husband. He made the arrangements for them quickly. So I came home to a house full of sad people. I never really wanted to let anyone see me cry, but I just had no control over it. And everyone was kind of in that phase. There was still this jokester in me trying to like not let us all be destroyed by that, you know? I know. My mom and my brother had returned to the house that night after he had passed away, and they had a plastic bag that had his remains in it. And it included the sweatpants that he had on that night and recent dental work of like a teeth grill that I remember my brother and I being like, man, he only recently got this done. What a waste of dental work. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But my brother and I referred to that bag as the bummer bag because it was like, well, this is all that's left of dad is in that bummer bag. And a few days later, we actually took out the bummer bag and we burnt it like in Star Wars when Luke is burning Darth Vader. Did I mention? Huge Star Wars fans. And we played the music from that scene as we did it. That was like the way that we were trying to process it because it was so sudden and it really messed with our family dynamic. Like I said, I was fluent in dad. And so my mom was like a second language. The guy who was sort of the buffer between them is gone. And we still get along, but it was just very different. And I'm trying to make jokes and she's not appreciating the jokes. <laughs> My brother's caught in the middle. He then feels guilty because he wasn't able to get there as soon as he could that night. And to add to this, my dad had told me at some point that when he died, he didn't want people to be sad. He wanted us to like celebrate his life and laugh. And so in a weird way, I, I was torn. The two parts of me, I was so sad, but I also kind of wanted to honor his wish. I also didn't really know what to do with my sadness. It didn't match the persona I had of being funny or tough. I felt so broken and vulnerable from the loss, but that vulnerability didn't match how I mainly identified. I think what wound up happening as a result is that in some ways my humor turned dark and bitter and sadness turned to anger 
to hide it. I was so completely consumed by it that the tragedy then tainted my comedy and my superpower became my own kryptonite. Isn't it always like that? Your greatest superpower is also the one thing that has the most potential to destroy you. So I return to work and part of my arm is falling off and I'm kind of like duct taping it to keep it on, like forcing it to be there. (laughs) And time goes on a little bit and it starts to feel less terrible. And then the election happened. The 2016 presidential election. This woke a lot of people up from our delusions. This year didn't belong to Colleen after all. And I felt like I got sucker punched all over again. And I felt a new wave of grief and nothing felt stable anymore. And I got really angry at the world. Some of it is also like now knowing in the years that have passed, like there's layers to to that of living in sort of a white privileged bubble world that I didn't think it would happen. And people who have been minorities in this country, knowing that this country could fail them. Experiencing this country fail them over and over again. I just didn't know that yet. And so it just felt like as soon as I started to kind of pick myself back up, I got slapped back down. And it was a new cycle of grief that I started going through. And I, this was really when my sense of humor turned on me because I was just so angry and I got bitter about so many things. I remember the night he was elected, I was on the phone with my mom and I broke down and I was like, I just wish dad was here to tell me that men don't think of me like this. Because it just felt like the worst person in the world who says awful things about women is now in charge. And it made me feel so small. And I missed my dad so much in that moment because I knew he would never have voted for that man. But that he maybe could have given me some perspective or made me feel like hashtag not all men, (laughs) hashtag not all old men. And my mom felt so not equipped. She was like, I'm sorry you're feeling this. Like she just did not know how to talk to me in that moment where he probably, and maybe part of that is the delusion and the myth of who he could have been for me in that moment because you just don't know. He's not there. Like, so the hypothetical becomes like, well, dad would know what to say. And then that seed of anger can really breed into other things where it was like, Everyone who had parents still, I was like, you don't know what it's like. You know, it was just like not good. (laughs) Do you see how the two separate stories, the one about her dad passing and the one about Trump being elected, kind of got mushed together and became part of the same story, at least for a while? I also got mad that other people weren't as mad as I was about what was happening. Like, how could you sit there at that diner and enjoy your meal when the world is crumbling around you? Like, it was just like... Decades of me not seeing the world for what it could be was coming crashing down. And and at the worst time, because I already had a wound, so it was like throwing salt on it. And it and in some ways, I was almost putting salt on my own wound. You go from sad to then all the stages of grief, which are not necessarily like something that you do in order. You like ping right. pong around. Shock, denial, pain, guilt, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance, hope. And one of the things that I think I've talked to you about too is that we don't have a language for grief. And so saying I'm so sorry doesn't feel like it's enough, but we also don't know what else to say. And so when I was getting I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry from people, I was almost getting angry and frustrated with it because it felt like it was pity which I hated. And what do you hate about pity? 
it's it's like a way of someone's like almost pointing at the vulnerability. And I was like, no, I don't want you to fucking look at it. Distaste for pity seems to be so universal. And if I'm honest, I have never understood it. I've thought about this so many times. I mean, it's not like I'm looking for your pity, but I don't want to like shove it back in your face if you give it to me. I don't get the anger towards it. Colleen said it really simple. People want to hide their vulnerability. I was so angry and I didn't know what where to put it. And I pushed some people away. If I'm honest, I pushed my husband away. It was a dumb logic. Here's the fun grief logic that I had. Well, if I push him away, then when he dies, I won't feel as sad as I do now. If I just keep everyone at an arm's distance, then when I lose them, it won't be as bad which is not a way to live your life. Let's just pause on this grown, highly intelligent adult person indulging in the kind of ridiculous, transparent, flimsy delusion that we would expect from a kindergartner. We are all so fragile, Earth Monster. And so he basically told me, like, he didn't know how to help me, and he felt lost. And in that moment, I realized avoiding and joking and being angry weirdly wasn't working. (laughs) And this was about nine months after it had happened. So in some ways, I kept thinking it would just get better. And in that moment, I had to admit that being tough and trying to handle it on my own wasn't working. And the tough, funny tomboy needed to ask for help. I did the thing that anyone who grew up in a waspy suburbs would usually avoid. I finally went to therapy. But there is a delusion attached to the help as well, which was that my job that I had at Disney, they had this employee assistant program. Which meant work offered five free therapy visits. And I'd be lying if part of me didn't think that I could probably knock this grief out in like five visits. (laughs) You were vocal about that. It was like, I'm going to need four and a quarter. Yeah. It'll be fine. You know, three if I really study hard. I'll give two of them to Ben. Right. I don't need them. Just like, like, just cue it up now, the delusion cue. It's just like, put it right there. (laughs) Delusion! You don't have to ask me twice. And so I went to therapy. I needed someone who was older and I wanted a woman who was like seasoned. And I found this woman and she was known for dealing with like grief and depression and stuff. I remember initially she validated like how hard it must have been to walk through the door, which at the time I definitely kind of like eye rolled about like, all right. But I also knew she had the right level of hippie that I would like listen, but not be too annoyed by. And I tried to start to tell her the story of kind of what I was telling you of like, well, 2016, I thought was going to be my year and I had all these things. And then my dad died and In me setting up the story, I was kind of like laughing and smiling and cueing through things like set up and minutes in, she stopped me and she was like, you like being funny. And I stopped dead in my tracks at that. I'm sorry, what? It was like, you like that about yourself. And I was just sort of like, damn lady, okay. She had my number from jump. You know, this is her job. And I kind of knew in that moment, like, Oh, I did pick the right person, but also like she knows the game you're playing. She's seen this before. You're falling into a pattern. Colleen had entered as one of those people who was very resistant to therapy, but she came to respect her therapist quickly. And in time, trust grew. I kind of had to rewrite how I saw myself in some ways. Like I had to realize my patterns and what I was doing and why I was doing it and then try to change it, which it can kind of sound simple to just like sit and talk to somebody, but you do have to analyze yourself and you deal with parts that you maybe don't want to look at. And then you have to do it with someone who's not going to let you off the hook because I think sometimes your friends will. And this person was able to stop me a lot of times when I just wanted to barrel through. And that was where I had to learn that like 
toughing it out wasn't going to serve me here. And so she would stop me all the time and in the pauses, allow me to like feel the emotion, let myself go through, okay, I feel sad or my body is warm because I feel activated. I'm angry. Like let myself feel these things. But in some ways I would almost feel like I was making progress if I could avoid crying. (laughs) If I was able to talk about my dad and not cry, I felt like, well, then it's solved, which is also a delusion of like, that's not how this works. (laughs) Weirdly, I went past my five visits and then I kept going. I hadn't figured it out after five. Still always holding the delusion of how temporary this situation was though. Yes. It was like, well, once I just get through the therapy, then I'll be good. Right. That's what I'm doing. And I am confronting these things and realizing anxiety that I have or my ability to catastrophize or, you know, what other, all these other therapy words I was learning. It was like I was in school again and I was wanting to be the good student that can make the teacher laugh. It became a different kind of old pattern. (laughs) She did call me out that I would sort of allow myself to only go so far. And then I would like brace because it was hard for me to truly let go. I, I literally asked her at one point, like how much longer until I'm fixed? I also was in an insecure moment had asked, am I doing better than other people with the same issue? Like, where, <laughs> right. am, I on, where am I on the spectrum of like a student <laughs> of therapy? How am I doing compared to the other people who are depressed? Like I'm functioning as a depressed person. So like right away I'm winning above the other people, right? She had to constantly remind me like, it's not a magic pill and it's a lifestyle choice that you have to make where when you feel these things building up, you can't push them away. It's going to build and become a bigger monster. I don't know what your relationship with therapy is, but for me, I was the most resistant to trying it when I needed it the most. It turns out I was just so afraid of what I would say. And when I finally got myself to do a session, I fell in love with it. Like, embarrassingly quickly. Hi, Matt. I'm Denise. I'll be your therapist. Thank you so much. I need this. Just to say that if you are the kind of person who's really resistant to going to therapy yourself, maybe that's just an old idea that you got stuck on. Okay, so it's called The Guest House. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival. A joy, a depression, a meanness... Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. This is a poem by Rumi that Colleen's therapist had recommended to her. Rumi? R-U-M-I, if you want to look it up. And I remember being like, okay. (laughs) She wants me to like welcome in these feelings. It's better to confront it, feel it, welcome the guest into the house, right? If the guest is going to fuck up your house, fine. But there might be a reason that they mess it up because then you're able to have the space to create something new. I kind of learned the population that lived within me. And unsurprisingly, the main characters were like the warrior and the goofball. And you realize that they're there to try to help me, but sometimes they're there for the wrong reasons. And you have to be like, hey, warrior, can you step back for a second? Like, hey, goofball, can we stop making jokes? I think I'm trying to find space for like a third bigger version, which is just like, I don't know what that is exactly yet. Like the empath or something, yeah. Maybe. I guess it maybe is more of the empath that I'm trying to show up and be like, you guys need to chill out. (laughs) Can you define the population that lives inside of you? Who are the main characters? What new character are you trying to manifest in yourself? 
I tried to stop pushing people away and I tried to be more affectionate or maybe allow the words I love you to come off my tongue a little bit easier. And I, I kind of got used to trying to maintain and checking in versus waiting for something to build to a problem that I then had to address. And right. in some ways that really is just kind of meditation. Therapy helped her understand herself better and to understand other people as well. The pity I thought I was getting from people of saying, I'm so sorry, was actually empathy, but we just didn't, we don't know how else to phrase it. So I started to, I started to have a little bit more patience with people. I started to understand where other people were coming from. I got less angry. Colleen's house is a social hub. Much like the guest house poem, she and her husband, Ben, have opened their own guest room to many different personalities who have found ourselves amidst messy life transitions over the years. It has served as something of a heartbreak hotel. And no matter if they have known the guests for years or have just met them through a friend, they have welcomed us all in. I had Caleb. Bianca, you stayed with us. James, Scott. So at least seven. Marky stayed with us for a little bit. So we've only been here for eight years. So eight people in eight years, there's been some shuffling. You know, I think that's where I do get the influence from my mom. As much as I'm like, I am my father's daughter. There's definitely pieces of my mom that live there. My mom gave me my kind of social skills and being like a nice, good, polite person. She leads more with her heart. My dad had a big heart, but he covered it. And that's where I think I learned that technique. But therapy has opened her up, given her new access to herself and a new emotional vocabulary. I don't know what the better language is for grief, but I think if we just are able to destigmatize it and talk about it in a real way, you know, I've had friends that have lost people and I initially will reach out and say, I'm sorry. And then when I try to see them in real life, I try to talk more realistically about it. But uh, you also have to gauge where that person is. So that's why it's a tricky area that we don't have great language for because it's, it's so different for everybody experiencing it. Do you have better language for grief? If you have any insight here, I would love for you to leave us a message on the voicemail. But I think if we're able to be like, hey, grief is a process and it's something that happens for a long time and you don't need to fast forward through this. You don't need to quote, cry it out and then you're better. It takes people time and that's the truth of like the death getting its tentacles and everything, whether you see them or not, like it, it grabs hold of people. A lot of what I was also learning, though, in some ways, when she told me, like, I had a male mentality, I think part of that is a toxic masculinity thing. And me always wanting to, like, fit in and be one of the guys, this is an area where telling myself to, like, toughen up and, like, don't cry is sort of a toxic male idea. And I've learned very quickly through this process, well, I guess quickly is a generous adjective there, I learned through this process that... It's not weakness, it's actually strength to have empathy for others. Oof, let's let that sink in for a moment because we could all use the reminder. It's not weakness, it's actually strength to have empathy for others. There's nothing wrong with being kind to people. There's so much chaos in the world, why are we adding to it? Just be kind, (laughs) you know? But that was also like a two-year journey, at least, if I'm honest. And then I was able to start to see myself as like a character arc. And when I left, my therapist was like, you're more open now, and I know you're going to hate that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But she was also like, but your life is kind of in full color, and it's okay to oscillate between the ups and downs. Like, that's the point of living. 
I want to thank Colleen for her story today and for all of the important lessons that she left us with in this episode. If you have a better language for grief or an insight on that topic, do not hesitate to call our voicemail and drop some truth bombs on us. 323-540-4540. Thank you for being here with me today, Earth Monster. You can write us a review. Shoot us 143 on Venmo if you like what you're hearing. Uh, the voicemail, and we have got more epic everyday stories of success and redemption coming for you next Monday. Until next time. As much as it pains me, you can definitely use parts of me crying. That's because that's vulnerable. As much as I'm like, ah, fuck. There's still that toxic part of me that's like, I could have gotten through it without it, but... You were really against therapy. Not against <laughs> therapy, but you did not want to go to therapy. Because to, in some ways, going to therapy was admitting defeat in my mind of like, I'm going because I can't handle this myself and I should be able to handle this myself because I'm strong enough or I'm whatever enough that I should be able to do this on my own. I think that's a toxic mindset that prevents a lot of people from going to therapy who really should, especially after a pandemic year. It's a place where you can kind of get off the hamster wheel for a second and be still and be like, what do I need? What am I doing? How do I do this better? You know? Yeah. Everybody should go to therapy. <laughs> Agreed. If your delusion was to be funny and tough, therapy... It is diametrically opposed to me being there and doing that, which I think is what she kindly dismantled that very quickly of like, right. you think you're hilarious and this is not useful right now. <laughs> you're trying to joke about your dad dying. Feels like you maybe want to cry about that. You know, I don't even know you lady.